I'm World Cup champion Megan Klingenberg. Wondering who you should root for at the FIFA Women's World Cup? I'm hosting a new podcast, my new favorite Futbolista, where I will introduce you to soccer's brightest stars and the causes they are championing. From the 22-year-old American phenom speaking out about student-athlete mental health. I try to just like approach everything with like you don't know what someone's going through. To the U.S. defender who travels to tournaments with her young son. Am I ever going to be able to run for five minutes straight? Check out my new favorite Futbolista wherever you listen to podcasts. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Edit audio. Do you watch the WNBA? Not usually, no. When my partner does. That's it. (laughs) Do you have a favorite team? Um... Um, what does Sue Bird play for? <laughs> She's retired. <laughs> and I almost just like, is Megan Rapino? Can we just play Swatch Soccer, oh, maybe? This is Rebound Revolution, a not-so-basketball podcast bringing you the revolutionary on and off the court happening in the WNBA. From queer baddies to history to ones to watch, Join me, Money, as we get into it all. This week, we'll dive into queerness and gender in the W, and later I'll be joined by our guest, Kendall Rollins. A lot of what I think people just attribute to, like, sports culture or a sports swag is actually a lot of what we see in Black communities. Can I start here by talking about the L word? Okay, (laughs) hear me out. Picture it. I'm in college. It's circa 2007, uh, figuring out that I'm not straight and everyone is going up for the L word and how seen they feel by the cast. Well, the L word was iconic, you know, for being a scripted TV show about lesbians, but it wasn't it for me. I still struggle to see the reflections of myself in the show as someone who's a bigger body, dark skinned black femme. But when I think about watching WNBA games back then, oh, the W never lacked in representation. Even in the early aughts, before players were openly naming their queerness, I'd watch games and see a plethora of gender expression, masculinity, powerful femininity, and queerness on the court. Someone asked me if I was gay, and it was the first time someone asked me, and um. Yeah, I am. I came out with that article about being, like, fluid, bisexual and stuff. I've had boyfriends. I've had girlfriends. Whatever, right? I'm super queer and very out in a lot of ways. Um, Also identifies trans. I always saw reflections of myself in the players. There are two major reasons why I think having queer representation in the league is so important. The first is the power of watching Black queer women work collaboratively as a team. I think it's really important that basketball is a team sport. And we're seeing all these queer folks of color, queer women of color, uh, work collectively and even organize off the court. I'm thinking about the Minnesota Lynx in the early 2000s and them taking the court with the Black Lives Matter t-shirts to draw attention to Philando Castile, you know? 
I really don't hear a lot of folks talk about the WNBA in the legacy of Black lesbian collectives, lesbian of color collectives that have always organized for liberation. Specifically, I'm thinking about the Kitchen Table Press and the Combahee River Collective as legacies that WNBA teams are a part of as lesbian of color who organize together. The second reason why I think having Black queer representation in the league is so important is the expansiveness of gender representation and queerness you get to see just by tuning into a game. I can't think of another space that I could tune into on TV and see such a wide variety of gender presentation. There's so much space for masculinity under the umbrella of girlhood and womanhood and queerness in the W. And there's also hyper-femme representations of queerness. I think it's really important that things that Black women often get dinged for, like being dark-skinned, being big, being strong, being fast, we actually get celebrated for in the W. So in the words of Ari Chambers, the WNBA is so important. Hey, Kendall. Hi. Nice to meet you. It's so nice to meet you, too. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so my name is Kendall. I she, they pronouns. I'm a current PhD student at uh, the University of California, Santa Barbara in feminist studies. And I study Black queer athletes and how they create their own spaces and counter narratives. So clearly the the (laughs) expert we needed for this episode (laughs) on queerness in the W. Can I ask you what inspired that research? Absolutely. So I'm a Black queer woman and I play basketball. (laughs) Exactly. See? Um, And I played basketball my entire life. I played in college. I was a D3 athlete at Hamilton College and really just was like, I have, you know, my limitations on the court. There's a certain extent to where my skill level can go, but I was still really interested in it and still wanted to be able to engage the sport just in a different capacity. And I think I'm much better suited to do that as a researcher than I was on the court. I was just looking for ways to stay involved with the sport I kind of love, but also to turn a little bit of a critical lens to it. So that's really what inspired my research. It's a passion project for sure. (laughs) Is that Hamilton College in upstate New York? Middle of nowhere, New York. Yes. Yes. I did my PhD at Syracuse, so I'm familiar with Hamilton. Yes. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Yep. (laughs) And so you said you played basketball most of your life. Yes. Very, like, um, surface level. Who do you think has, like, really good fashion in the league? I gotta say Destiny Henderson. Henny! Like, I have to. I have to. This is gonna get a little academic for two seconds, but... Please! (laughs) There's this one part in some of the work that I'm doing talking about, you know, like, Black, queer kind of sporting aesthetics, and trying to get into that a little bit because I saw some articles written about the W that were talking about how there's this kind of queer aesthetic and they were showing Mm -hmm. a lot of pictures of all of the Black athletes, like the Mm -hmm. Black queer players Uh and some of their more masculine dress and different things like that. And I thought that 
some of the articles were just missing that kind of racialized aspect to it. I'm yes. like, so much of this kind of hoop culture is sure a, a queer aesthetic in mm-hmm. in some of it but also very 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 much a black aesthetic mm-hmm. and so to actually like make those two things kind of speak to one another a little bit more yeah it's something that I'm really interested in and yeah. really want to kind of expand upon and I think like Destiny Henderson I think Courtney Williams is another one that Courtney does Williams. that yeah. like they know that they're fly they come in yes. and they're like yeah like I'm ready so those two for sure yeah, this is reminding me of Eric Darnell Pritchard's work. Mm-hmm. He wrote an article about the Black queer fashion in Pariah, the like movie Pariah. Mm-hmm. And as we watch that character evolve, like the way her Black queer fashion sense changes, it's actually reminding me of like what we see on like draft night versus what we see as walk-in fits and how that changes. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about how like blackness informs that queer aesthetic as well? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of what I think people just attribute to like sports culture or a sports swag is actually a lot of what we see in Black communities, primarily like throughout the U.S. Mm -hmm. So I think about the ways that kind of Allen Iverson influenced Mm -hmm. it a lot. You think you get a bad rap just because you got cold rolls? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's unfair. It's unfair, but it's true. Yeah. It's true. I mean, people look at the way I dress, um, who I hang around, jewelry and everything. I mean, people try to make me 34 years old and I'm only 24 years old. I'm growing every day. And that kind of culture shift within the NBA to, you know, not be walking in in the suits or the different things like that and to be mm-hmm. able to wear a bit more of what people I think would deem like street wear mm-hmm. that have then really become like iconic type of like fit. So I see that kind of happening in the NBA and then a similar kind of parallel happening in the WNBA mm-hmm. where... I think a lot of what's being kind of attributed to just sport swag in general is actually more of like a racialized aesthetic. Mm-hmm. That is then because you got a league that's 80% Black athletes. Yep. I think there's kind of a slippage sometimes between what's attributed to a sport and a culture surrounding a sport and then the players that actually make up the majority of the league. I feel like my head is just like sparking off with so many images of walk-in fits and Mm -hmm. how people have shifted their styles and how that has been informed by Black queerness. Because I was thinking about, you named um, Destiny Henderson and Courtney Williams. Mm -hmm. I think what's also important about their style is that it's a Southern Black aesthetic. Like, with the multiple chains, yep. like the layer yep. rings, you know, yep. <laughs> like the bright colors. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm also thinking about non-Black players in the league who have kind of like adopted more of that Black queer street swag, I think, to like express their queerness. Like I'm thinking about Sue Bird, who was just like yeah. the league's darling with her little ponytails yep. coming in. Right? <laughs> And now she has the little gold layer chains. Now she's wearing the, she has the newest J's or the newest this or that or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And something you said made me think about um, the way that you've seen kind of the shift between tunnel fits, like what we see players wearing now, Mm -hmm. and then their draft night picks. I was listening to this interview that Ari Chambers did with Courtney Williams, Mm -hmm. and Courtney Williams was saying, I'm not putting the bundles back in. You're about (laughs) to see this shaved head. You're not seeing the 
the, all the things because on her draft day, she was presenting more feminine, yeah. right? Like she did. She had the bundles in. Yeah. Like she was wearing, I think, a dress and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then you see her tunnel fits now and it's the shaved head, mm-hmm. just more masculine dress. And so yeah. I think you kind of see a shift in the league where players are able to express their queerness and express mm-hmm. themselves more through their dress, through their speech, through kind of everything going yeah. in. So I, it's really encouraging to kind of see that shift where players feel more comfortable, like their league is more accepting of them being able to come how they want. Mm-hmm. I'm also thinking about on like the femme end of the spectrum too. And it feels like there was like a run of draft classes where you basically had to show up business professional. You know? like, <laughs> yes. The the femininity was very like newscaster dress. But, yeah. But now <laughs> I'm thinking about like this femininity that can be playful over the top, like braids to the knees. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's really cool, I think, to see because if you kind of go to either end of like this spectrum, mm-hmm. I think the league has kind of pushed back against that a little bit. So if you're too feminine, they're almost saying like okay well like we need you to still show up as an athlete so maybe tone it down a little bit and then if you show up too masculine whatever that Mm -hmm. is um the league has also pushed back against that a little bit Mm because at least at the very beginning of the league the league was attempting to market itself as like well you're women's basketball players we need people to like lean into that femininity and we want them to you know be attracted because sex sells. And if we if we make sure it's fem enough, we can get people to come. So yeah. I think it's actually really exciting to be able to see there be nuance mm-hmm. and just allow people to come however makes them feel most comfortable. And that's kind of at either end of that spectrum. Mm-hmm. I think it's really exciting. Yeah. I think it was like Taya Cooper, who also should be sponsored by somebody's edge control. Somebody's. <laughs> she was like, you know, when you feel good, you play good. And like, this is how I feel good. Like, I feel good with the Absolutely. long lashes, the lay edges, my bundles and ponytail. And so I play a lot better when I'm that way. That definition of whatever makes you feel good is mm-hmm. different for each player. Exactly. So I love to be able to see the range of that throughout the league. And I'm not saying that every single person is as comfortable being able to express themselves in that way. But I think the league is trending towards players being able to express themselves a little bit more, Mm -hmm. which is always the right direction to go. Yeah. Okay. So as a fellow nerdy black queer <laughs> a scholar <laughs> you mentioned that there's like a gap in the literature focused on black queer women when it comes to black queer athletes why do you think that is so i think when a lot of folks have been writing about black women athletes what they've been writing and attempting to do is kind of dispel this myth that you know black women are inherently more masculine or i think of the example of serena williams Mm -hmm. a lot there's been so much discourse about her body about her being like too physical too masculine too angry aggressive all of the stereotypes Mm -hmm. right so i think so much has been put into kind of working against that harmful stereotype that then there's been a little bit of a gap and not all queer women are masculine, but I mm-hmm. think there's then been a little bit of a gap in, okay, so what do we do with the 
Black queer women that are intentionally performing Mm -hmm. masculinity, Mm -hmm. that that's what makes them feel good, that that's what they're leaning into. I think sometimes it's hard to hold the both and of it, that like there's this really controlling Patricia Collins, this controlling image, right? (laughs) This controlling image that is operating that Black women are, you know, understood through Mm -hmm. while also saying, and there are some folks that are genuinely like performing their gender like this. Mm -hmm. And this is something that feels good for them. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And for listeners who might not be as familiar, Patricia Hill Collins is an incredible Black feminist theorist. And she has this theory about controlling images. And a controlling image is a really restrictive um, stereotype about a group of people, right? And so she's writing about Black women. And what that limits our ability to see ourselves as and what other people can see us as. Absolutely. So I think that we've kind of focused on the harmful image and kind of shied away from from that part of it. And then I think just generally in, in queer studies, people aren't focusing on race as much. I mean, obviously, there's an entire framework like queer of color critique that really like gets to that. But there's just like a little bit of a gap when we're focusing on like Black queer athletes, Black queer women as well. You know, Kendall, I'm going to hype you up for a second (laughs) because having survived this like PhD experience as a Black queer woman too, I also think it's because not a lot of us are in that space to be doing the research from a loving, already affirming lens instead of like a yeah. a one down approach to what's wrong with Black queer women. It's like a yeah. celebration of Black queer women's culture. I think you as yeah. a researcher make that visible and important too. Thank you. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Something you said earlier too has me curious about, do you think that Black queer women athletes do something different with masculinity. I'm thinking about like that controlling narrative around Black women being inherently masculine or more masculine. It just feels different what Black queer women do with masculinity. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I think we have this conventional kind of definition of what masculinity is and what it looks like. And When Black women are being portrayed as more masculine, that masculinity is directly tied to aggressiveness Mm. uh, and tied to other kind of negative things where I think that Black queer women that are performing masculinity are taking that and kind of turning it on its head. They are performing masculinity in a different way, if that makes Mm. sense. So there are some Mm -hmm. of the same markers and then some things are very, very different. Yeah, I think I am attracted to masculinity, not on male bodies, if that makes sense. Because I think that that folks who aren't men do something different, do something creative with masculinity Mm -hmm. in a way that men don't. Like, like, you know, nothing about, like, Brittany Griner's masculinity or Simone Augustus's masculinity Mm -hmm. reminds me of a masculinity that, like, I don't know, like a John Morant or, you know, like it doesn't, it just doesn't align. I feel like there's something playful. There's something um, brighter and like more colorful that Black queer women do with masculinity. So, yeah, I think I would agree with that. I think that there's like that moment of rupture is kind of what I hear you identifying. And I think it's not buying into some of the more 
patriarchal or misogynistic kind of viewpoints. So it disrupts that kind of linear progression between like patriarchy, men, masculinity, like that linear line. Instead, there's multiple points of rupture within it because some of the women aren't buying into some of those ideals. And then Mm -hmm. there's also that moment of rupture between like, how does masculinity operate when it's not on a man or, you know, different things like that. So, yeah. yeah. So I think you're right. There's definitely something there. I was like, that Uh that sounded like another dissertation topic for you. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to go run it back, you can do another. (laughs) When I tell you I'm done writing dissertation. No. (laughs) You're like, that was it. (laughs) The one and done. But maybe there's there's a further collapse in the works. There you go. An article. An article. There it is. (laughs) Kindle and money coming at you with the article. I think what you just said exactly it's like that's what's in my brain there's a rupture that happens in the the linearity if that's a word uh, um of like masculinity equals patriarchy equals man it's like no it actually doesn't mm-hmm. when you include black queer masculinity i think the hegemonic understanding of patriarchy and masculinity is like masculinity is as far away from femininity as you can get or as far away Mm -hmm. from womanhood as you can get. And Mm -hmm. Black queer women just disrupt that, right? That's why it feels playful because it's turning it on its head. Yeah, I like that. Absolutely. We heard you loud and clear. You love the WNBA and want more analysis and insight on your favorite players. Welcome to Queens of the Court, an Odyssey original podcast. I'm your girl, Cheryl Swoops. And I'm Jordan Robinson. All season long, we'll be bringing you the post-game analysis that you crave and sitting down for interviews with athletes across the W. You can listen to Queens of the Court on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Okay. So your thesis focused on how misogynoir um, presents in the W. So uh, first of all, can you talk about what misogynoir is for folks who might not be familiar with the term? Yeah, absolutely. So it's the anti-Black misogyny that Black women in particular face. So it's kind of combining those two ideas. Mm -hmm. And within the WNBA, something that I looked at, I kind of had a two-part approach to the project. So first, I was looking at mainstream media, mainstream media being anything from reports on ESPN, the Sports Illustrated, to the New York Times, to anything like that, um, where people would be able to consume sports media, particularly about the WNBA. And I kind of looked at the way that journalists were writing about the league and writing about the players And something that I noticed was that the Black women in the league get significantly less media mentions. So that was the first thing, is that they're just talked about less. I think we see Sue Bird and Diana Taurasi and Brianna Stewart all being talked about kind of 
so 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 much even yeah. sabrina sabrina Ionescu. yeah and they haven't necessarily had the same success as a John Quill Jones or an Asia Wilson or any of these kind of like former MVPs. I mean, Sue Bird and Brianna Stewart and Diana Taurasi absolutely have, but but just the the focus on their media mentions versus reigning MVPs. Yep. There was a huge discrepancy in that. So I also went a step further to not just notice that there's a discrepancy in the amount that they're being talked about, but actually also the way that they're being talked about. So mm-hmm. one of the examples that I used, she's not a queer player, but it was an example that kind of got to how Black women are being talked about within the league is the entire incident with Liz Cambage and Kurt Miller. Go to the coach of Connecticut. The next time you try to call out a referee, um, you know, trying to get a call being like, come on, she's 300 pounds. I'm gonna need you to get it right, baby. Because I'm 6'8". I'm weighing, I just double-checked because I love to be correct and get facts. I'm weighing 235 pounds and I'm I'm very proud of being a big bitch. So don't ever try to disrespect me or another woman in the league. Oh, I do have to say one more thing. I think there's a big difference between players and players. Like talking shit on the court before a coach for another team to be yelling like protected abuse because we can't do nothing back. It's just crazy to me. And I'd be talking a lot and I didn't even say nothing tonight. That's crazy, bro. I think he was advocating for for it to be a foul called on Liz mm-hmm. instead of instead of the other way around. And he emphasized her weight. He yep. said, come on, she's 300 pounds. But it really got to a lot of this kind of anti-Black sentiment Mm -hmm. surrounding the way that coaches and writers and different things actually interact with Black bodies, particularly like the bodies of the players on the court. So emphasizing her weight Mm -hmm. and her size really leans into some of these, Mm -hmm. again, like anti-Black ideologies that we were talking about, about like, well, if she's bigger, then she can't, you know, be hurt like she can't feel pain she doesn't deserve the same type of protection or she's inherently more aggressive or any of these other things and so it's not just that black women athletes are being talked about less in the media when they are talked about in the media it's through some of these lenses so i know that that was a comment made by a coach but then even in the media they would put her name as the headline instead of talking about kurt miller so it would be a liz cambage issue and even in some of the articles it was like well, she clapped back on Instagram and responded and made it this entire thing when it's like, she's at work. This would be workplace harassment. Exactly. Like, it should go to HR. It flattens the power (laughs) dynamic, right? Like, it makes her body inherently give her the same power as, like, this person who has actually a lot of power over her in her workplace. Absolutely. So that was that was one of the examples of the way that these athletes are being treated. So it's not just not being mentioned in the media, but it's also the way that they're talked about in the media. You even had me thinking about commentators and, like, whenever Rebecca Lobo is, like, calling a game the way people call for her to no longer ever call a game because the way she talks <laughs> about people's bodies, it feels icky as opposed to, like, a Cheryl Swoops or a Lisa Leslie who's like, get it, big girl. Yes, I love to see my big mm-hmm. girls. But, you know, it's like, it feels like mm-hmm. a celebration of the difference right. of body size as opposed to, like, a tearing down. Right. 
yeah, there's just so many, there's so many layers to the game where it's not just what's happening on the court, but then it's all Mm -hmm. the discourse that is kind of happening around it simultaneously that can actually really impact what's happening on the court. Cause I think if we going back to the Liz Cambage example, if we keep talking about her and her body and athletes like her in a particular way, it might influence the way that the refs Absolutely. do call or don't call fouls. Yep. And that can directly impact her like physical well-being, mm-hmm. not to mention she hears everything that's happening. Yeah. You know, so do her teammates. So do people watching the games and different things like that. So I think that it's not just talk. These things have like real material impacts on people's lives. Yeah. And I really want that to be the kind of the focus of like what my research is grounded in, in that like this impacts people yes. in so many different ways. So I love that. There's also media representation of W players outside of their own accounts on social media. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about like TV shows, like references, you know, to WNBA players, or even when they make cameos or like movies and sports documentaries and stuff or docuseries. Do you have mm-hmm. any like favorites or media coverage that you think did it really well? Or maybe some that didn't uh, do it so well based on your face. <laughs> hmm. So some of my favorite, like, casual, just, like, drops, almost, Mm -hmm. like, making it just more normalized has actually been, like, Abbott Elementary. I don't know if you watch it. has had a couple of WNBA references in there. And I've been like, okay, way to just go ahead and and put it in there. You know what I mean? So I know that those are more minor examples, but Mm -hmm. I almost kind of like that. But there's just been the casual incorporation of WNBA players, WNBA teams into kind of everyday mainstream media mm-hmm. in that way because I'm mm-hmm. like okay representation like I love that yeah. like yeah make it a normal thing that people like WNBA games yes. like I love yeah. that so that's one of the more minor ones I like that they made the documentary the 144 144 yeah I think Chinea Gumake was like was the director producer or producer yeah or, or something like that on that right I I liked that as well I think it gave good context to the fact that The WNBA is one of the most difficult leagues to make and to stay in. 144 spots. That's it. That's it. it. Mm -hmm. Like, there's no G League. There's no any type of, you know, feeder system into that, anything like that. So I think that it added really good context Mm -hmm. and I think allowed people to kind of see the ins and outs of the league a little bit more. Mm Connecting Courtney Williams to this. So Courtney was in the 144 Mm -hmm. documentary. And I think something she said that was so important. And another reason why I think the W is so important is like they were having these really hard conversations around Breonna Taylor. Mm -hmm. How do they show up as a league that Mm -hmm. is 80% Black women, you know? And Courtney Williams was like, we came here to play. And like, while the men canceled their games, that's fine. But I think it's actually more important that we show up and that that line that she said in that documentary just really stays with me about the w like it actually makes more of an impact to see us than for us to not play like the men would do and i think something that has been really encouraging about the WNBA because i think there's a marketability now mm-hmm. for leagues to be like racial justice oriented Mm -hmm. or at least that's what that's what they say so I think about how in the NFL they have like end racism in the end zones 
but then the NFL is still in the NFL and they still <laughs> right. had the name of the Washington football team right. being the, the previous name for the longest. I'm like, what do you mean in racism? Yeah. Like, what are you talking yeah. about? So I think that to me is very, very performative. Mm-hmm. And then I think you see something a little bit different happening with the WNBA. And I think it's really driven by the players themselves. There's 144 mm-hmm. of them. And I'm not saying that every single player is on the same page, but it's much easier to get 144 people kind of all moving in the same direction than it is to get an NFL, especially Mm -hmm. with how big that league has gotten. I think the relatively, and I'm not even saying the WNBA is small because I think it has a great following Mm -hmm. that's only growing, but comparatively speaking, I think that that's been something that's been used to their advantage. The WNBA and the players within it have reached out to Black feminist scholars such as Kimberly Crenshaw Mm -hmm. and actually pulled her in to have somebody advising them in a way that seems more than performative. They made an impact in Warnock's campaign. Yes, in Georgia. Mm -hmm. They're doing so many different things that are very layered. Not only are they wearing Black Lives Matter t-shirts, but they're wearing t-shirts that say Black Trans Lives Matter. They're paying attention to the people that are actually most impacted and also a part of their league. We have Mm -hmm. multiple non-binary players Mm -hmm. or trans players within the WNBA. Mm -hmm. And they're not just saying, okay, well, Black Lives Matter. We're also saying Black Trans Lives Matter and being able to kind of back that up in a way. I think you're I think you're seeing that a little bit more within the WNBA than you are in any other professional sports league. It's special. (laughs) It's really special. And that's Mm -hmm. so that's why I think like when I do this work and I kind of critique aspects of it, I attempt to do it in a loving way Mm -hmm. also to be able to say this thing that I love so much, this league that I love also still has its flaws and we can push that in a better direction if we kind of just pay attention to some of the things. So Mm -hmm. what are some of the things we should be paying attention to? Like what's the better direction? What's your vision for the W? (laughs) Oh my God. One, get me more teams. That'd be fantastic. Expansion. (laughs) Expansion. I need more teams. I need more players. I need all the things, but um, (laughs) I'm not sure. That is up for brains better than mine that that can figure that out. But more teams, I think, really also just better travel for the teams. There's no reason why these professional athletes should be getting on regular flights and having them canceled or delayed Mm -hmm. or sleeping in airports. Sleeping in airports. There's no way. There's no way that your body can then the next day or whenever the next game is get up and perform well. Mm-hmm. There's just no way. But also I think in the, in the marketing of the league, I really would love to see the league lean into promoting their black players as well. Like I love Sue Bird. Part of the reason why when I played, I wore number 10. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like love Sue Bird. I was like, that's the type of point guard I'm trying to be. Right. Mm-hmm. But there's no reason that Sue Bird, Diana Taurasi and Brianna Stewart should be the only people mm-hmm. and the only names that, people that aren't like diehard fans of women's basketball should know. There's no reason. Mm -hmm. So I think actually you can't have your players wearing Black Lives Matter t-shirts and then also not promoting any of your black players, Mm -hmm. not actually naming their impact and the fact that they helped build this league quite literally from the ground up. I like that vision. (laughs) I like that vision too. I hope somebody else leans into it. 
Where can folks find you? Like, if they want to keep up with you, keep up with your research, root you on through this PhD <laughs> process, because I know it's a marathon. Yeah. You can always find me on the UCSB Feminist Studies uh, Department, <laughs> but also my Instagram, Dolly Raleigh, D-A-L-L-I-E-R-A-L-L-I-E. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kendall, for joining Thank us you. today. It was excellent talking to you. It was also excellent nerding out about <laughs> Black queer studies stuff. Yeah. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. <laughs> I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com match. Just go to Indeed.com match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Want to sound like you in the know when it comes to the W? I got you. This is Fundamentals, where I'll give you a rundown of something to make you look like you're the expert in the room. This week... We're talking expansion. If you've been involved in any part of WNBA fan socials, you've seen conversations about expansion, expand the league. What is expansion? Expansion literally is what it sounds like. It means growing the league. I know folks who might follow other leagues might think these are just the teams that have always been. And that's not true. New teams get added. Teams move cities. Uh, teams fold all the time across leagues. And so a lot of the fans of the W really want to see more teams because we have the Dirty Dozen right now, but we want to see a lot more. So people mostly ask where, like they kind of poll their followers, where should the next team be or what team of yesteryear should return to the W? Well, Portland, Oregon has entered the chat and they would like a word. <laughs> Portland wants a WNBA team, y'all. 
Jenny Wynn, the owner of the Sports Bra, which is the first women's sports bar in Portland, started a petition to bring a WNBA team to Portland. And the petition already has many signatures and has even gained support from Senator Ron Wyden out of Oregon. This is not surprising. The West Coast has a lot of women's sports support. I'm thinking about Oregon in particular, you know, when Sabrina Ionescu was an Oregon duck, the triple-double queen herself, those games were packed out. Uh, I know Oregon deeply supports her and, you know, would love to have a team there. But another thing I think about when I think about expansion particularly for the WNBA, is not just where there's already strongholds of women's sports fans, but what would the experiences for queer of color athletes living in those cities be like? When I think about the WNBA, the players are queer folks of color, and also a lot of the fans are queer folks of color. So what kind of experiences would people have going to games in Portland? Um, I know Portland is a really queer place to be, you know, very LGBT friendly, but I also know it's a city that doesn't have uh, large populations of folks of color. And so I just wonder what kind of other shifts um, cities would welcome in welcoming a WNBA team, you know, because the queerness and the folks of color come along with those fan bases as well. So have you heard whispers of other expansions? You know, I'm here in Philly and I think there's always talk here in Philadelphia about a team as well. So if you've heard whispers of expansion in your area, let me know. There are a lot of dope players in the W, but not everyone gets their flowers. And I want to make sure they do. So I'm going to shout out a player who everyone should know in a little segment called (laughs) Money's MVP. This week, my MVP is Natasha Cloud. Where to even start with Taj Cloud? So Natasha Cloud is obviously known for her energy. Hey, energy. Like if you've watched the Washington Mystics play or even been to an Athletes Unlimited game, you know you can hear Tosh Cloud come into the arena because she comes with such energy. You can, you can hear the A from the stands. Her current team is the Washington Mystics in Washington, D.C. She's been playing with them for a few seasons now, won a championship with the Mystics. I think a really unique thing to know about Tosh Cloud is... In 2020, so coming off of a championship season, she set out the 2020 season when everybody played in the bubble because of the pandemic and actually took that season to organize and protest in the city of Washington, D.C. around police brutality. So not only is she doing incredible things on the court, but definitely off the court, too, and is a really recognizable face in Washington, D.C. because of that activism she did in 2020. I think Taj Cloud deserves her flowers because... I hear y'all talking about her being fine. I see lots of folks talking about how cute she is, but not a lot of people talk about she can actually play, okay? For you to be an impact player on a team that has 
like big players like Elena Del Don, you know, like it means something for you to be a name that folks recognize when there's franchise players on the roster, right? I think we got to mention Taj Cloud when we talk about players who are two-way players, like can play defense and can score, not just for being fine. Okay, y'all, I know she's fine. I know she's fine. <laughs> but is also an activist off the court and can play, can play. So keep your eyes on Natasha Cloud as Money's MVP and let me know who else you think deserves their flowers. Rebound Revolution is an edit audio original podcast created in collaboration with The Cube. I'm your host, Money McEachern, and this episode was produced by Melissa Houghton, Mick Finnegan, and me. It was edited, mixed, and mastered by Mick Finnegan. Our supervising producer is Anna Deshawn. Our executive producer is Steph Colburn. Thank you to Kathleen Speckert and the whole edit audio team.